I'm Rita Yeshwekar and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Leeds in the UK. My work is based around understanding the developmental biology behind flower production, especially uh, focusing on how plants make very uniform flowers, even though um, they experience continuously changing environments. Thank you for tuning in. This is my grad life. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the This Grad Life podcast. Here we chat with researchers about their work and the inner turmoil that often comes along with living life on the leading edge. I am your host, Dr. Ted Yu. If you can't get enough of science and or dread, head down to our official website, www.thisgradlife.com. There, you can read more about this episode's guest. Finally, if you find value in this podcast, you can also find links to support us. Today, I'd like to welcome Richa, who is a PhD candidate in the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. Uh, she is in the Department of Plants Bio... Uh, I already forgot. Uh, Center for Plant Sciences. Center for Plant Sciences. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm apparently a terrible listener. But anyway, thank you uh, for coming to the show. I uh, just wanted to mention, um, normally most people that I've interviewed, I, well, I have some connection to them, but... Uh, you were the fir- you're the first guest on the show to reach out to me to ask for an interview. So thank you, thank very glad to have you on this show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be. Uh, glad you're joining us from across the pond. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad to be speaking to you. Oh yeah, thank you, thank you. So let's start off as we always do. Could you tell me about your work? Uh, right. I am a plant biologist. And um, I focus on flower development, especially to see how plants make very uniform flowers. So uh, to give it more context, I'd just like to point out how plants really grow. They grow out there in changing environmental conditions because the climate and weather, it keeps on changing almost every minute. You've got different Temperatures, humidity, one day is a very cloudy day, the next day is a nice summer's day. Plants, they can't move and this is a lot to deal with. I mean, imagine staying out there without a shelter and surviving and then reproducing. So plants get all these stimuli, but they don't have a brain. So uh, there's no central processing of all these stimuli. So they can't decide what to do in which weather. Plant responses are more... um, They just respond as stimuli come. They change when something bad happens to them. For example, suppose you forgot to water your plant, so it doesn't have enough water. So sometimes uh, it starts rolling its leaves to uh, reduce loss of water from the leaves. These changes are called plasticity, and this is very important for plants to survive. But sometimes with some stimuli, plants have to be very robust and not change at all. One of these things is flower development. Producing flowers is a commitment to reproducing. That is very important because plants put in everything they have, all the resources and energy they have into reproducing. And if they are doing it under bad conditions, uh, they might not produce good progeny. So once plants commit to developing flowers, flowers are always quite uniform. And when I say uniform, this literally means if, if you've seen a flower, I, I'm sure people would have seen flowers, but uh, 
So the outermost layer, the green stuff, which looks like leaves, make the outermost layer. The second uh, wall is made up of petals, the colorful stuff. And then you have uh, the androsium and the gynesium. And this floral scheme is conserved throughout the angiosperms, which are higher plants. And I was quite interested in studying how this happens, especially, you know, when you look at certain flowers, like, let's say, for example, crucifers, they always produce four sepals and four petals. I mean, how and why? Because environments and climates keep on changing. This makes a very interesting question for our lab. So that is what I look at. So you mentioned that, yeah, making flowers, whenever a plant makes flowers, it's a commitment. Mm-hmm. Like it's an energy commitment to produce the flower because it wants to reproduce. Yes. Um, so then, I guess, well, I guess, what have you found so far in terms of like, hey, what does give plants the resilience to constantly changing outside conditions? So we've been thinking that uh, there must be a buffer in genetic terms, some genes or maybe some microRNAs, which act as a buffer between all those environmental fluctuations and then always give an output which is a uniform flower. And we've been trying to narrow down upon which genes they actually are. We haven't found the final answer yet because it is a very long process, but uh, we've narrowed, narrowed down upon certain candidates. Well, that's what science is about, right? We don't have the answers immediately. Yeah. Interesting question then. Is there is there a case when the changing environment does cause flowers to change the flowers that they grow? So you're studying the uniformity of flowers. Does the opposite case ever happen in nature? No, not not really. If you have a sudden change in the environment, plants don't flower, so they don't commit to reproduction till everything is fine. But once they start producing flowers, the process of developing flowers is quite robust. Ah, I see. So instead of maybe producing okay flowers, they just don't commit to it at all. Yeah, yes. The way I look at it is instead of producing crappy flowers and then crappy seeds, which might lead to a crappy progeny, they just don't do it. When you... So... How do you look at these? How do you study these flowers then? So you mentioned that you got your lab was able to narrow down sort of the, the, the DNA sequences that are responsible for when a plant decides to flower and how it flowers. So how do you search for genes like that? So um, this is a very interesting way of uh, looking at it. And um, people have been doing this for years now, especially geneticists and plant biologists. We look at mutants. There are certain seed banks which have mutant collections. We can get seeds for this particular plant I work on. It's called Arabidopsis thaliana, which is your roadside cress. So we look at mutants. And when they grow, if they show a phenotype, so uh, something which is not normal, we try and link that gene with that phenotype. Do you have to do a lot of genetic sequencing of your plants? Yeah, at some point. It's a great thing that this plant we work with, Arabidopsis, has been sequenced because so many people work on it. Um, it's, It's quite good. I mean, the annotation is quite nice. That is what we think. Bioinformaticians, they disagree. So most of the gene functions are now known because so many people work on that plant. It's 
bioinformaticians might disagree. They they don't think that level of annotation is enough, but uh, it somehow works for us. So what do you mean by annotation? So when you uh, sequence something, an organism, all you read is the bases in the DNA, which are like ATGs. ATGs. Yeah, right. And then you get to know what the genes are because uh, there are programs and algorithms which can predict uh, what out of that ADGC sequence is a gene. But now you don't know what that gene codes for. So, um, or well, bioinformaticians, they are great people. Uh, and they kind of compare these sequences between different organisms. So uh, there is something called uh, a BLAST search, which is the simplest thing anyone can do because it's a free online tool. And uh, find if there is something similar in other organisms and whether it has been characterized and experimentally validated. So uh, let's say I have a, a sequence and it's, a, it's supposed to be a gene sequence, but I don't know what it does. And if I put it into this online tool called BLAST and it matches to uh, something like, let's say, amylase in humans, it would just mean that, oh, it's, it's a protein which digests sugars. And uh, that, that is how genomes are annotated. Ah, I see. So you have there's an online database sitting somewhere that has all this information mm -hmm. with that course correlates a sequence of ATCs and Gs to something that it does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the function can be predicted for many sequences, but um, at some point you have to go and experimentally validate it to make sure that, oh, right, this gene is actually this and this is how it works. So you brought up something kind of interesting that I wanted to ask about. Is there, in the field of geneticists, is there some sort of contention between uh, people that just want to sequence things all day and people that want to see what it does? Is that, uh, I, I've picked up a hint of that. Yeah. And uh, I, I've seen both sides. Uh, I've been lucky enough to see both sides, really. So, um you know, most people or even most plant biologists don't realize this, that uh, when you sequence one plant, let's say you sequence rice, doesn't mean that's all kinds of rice, because there are so many varieties, there are thousands of varieties, and uh, they come from different regions of the world. So there might be big differences, you never know. So some people think that sequencing most of them like the important varieties is really important if you want to improve those crops. But then they sequence it, keep on sequencing it. Uh, but experimental validation takes time, especially with plants, because the turnaround time with experiments is so long. One experiment can take months. Is that just because you have to grow the plants? Yeah. So, uh, and there, there aren't enough people who, who do these kinds of experiments because, uh, well, obviously, funding is also another issue with this. So uh, there's there's no balance. But uh, this is, this is a good question. This is this was interesting. But I yeah I I, I think personally that uh, more experimental validation is necessary. Tell me a little bit more about that. You said that you've seen both sides. Have you done research in both sides? Is that how you know? So before I started my PhD, uh, I worked for this 
organization called uh, International Crops Research Institute, the Semi-Arid Tropics. I know it's a long name, but uh, this is an institute funded by multiple countries across the world to improve crops which grow in the semi-arid areas. So they work on crops like groundnut and chickpea and cereals like sorghum and millets. And because these crop varieties are very local, not many people have studied them before. And there are so many varieties and sequencing them is quite important. So they do sequence a lot. Like I know uh, there were a couple of chickpea genomes sequenced uh, a few years ago. But a very recent paper from this institute just sequenced something like thousands of chickpea varieties, which is important for them, obviously, because they work on crop improvement. But uh, when someone like me, a developmental biologist, sees this, you think, oh, my God, that's so much money. And when are we going to validate all this? Right. So you sequence the gene and then you have to then grow the plant and change the gene to make sure that the protein, that the gene that we sequence is actually doing what we think it is, right? Is that what you mean? Yeah. So a very general example can be, uh, let's say that there's a gene which produces chlorophyll, the green pigment in plants. And if you mutate that gene, uh, plants wouldn't produce that much green pigment. So they would look not that green, maybe a little yellowish. So that is when you say that, oh, this gene is directly linked to producing chlorophyll. Mm, gotcha. So th that is experimental validation in very general terms. Okay, so I, I see the point of contention then. So it's see I see the push to sequence a lot of this stuff because, yeah, when you know the genetic information of something. Right. But then, uh, you know, if, if you do this for one plant, uh, let's say people do this for Arabidopsis, and now they know uh, the gene sequence for... Uh, chlorophyll production and they've experimentally validated it and somebody goes and sequences wheat and they find a similar sequence uh, they don't really have to do all of that again so sequencing just sequencing for that might work unless it's so unless it's something very new or very specific to that particular plant just for my own curiosity I guess, how much does it cost to do something like that then? The sequencing, I imagine, is the cheapest part <laughs> of this process. Yes. Well, I think grants in plant biology go up to millions because it's growing plants for a few generations and doing all these experiments. And when you make mutations or overexpress a gene, it involves um, some basic cloning and then transforming the plants. And then you grow plants in uh, very controlled conditions. So in grow chambers at particular light and temperature conditions or in glass houses. And well, all this costs money. Arabidopsis, for example, um, takes six weeks to eight weeks to, you know, um, right from sowing the seeds to getting the next seeds again. Uh, its turnaround time is quite low but it still takes like eight weeks so uh we essentially run an ex a single experiment for like two months ah i see that i was gonna ask that so that leads me to my next question could you tell us about sort of your day-to-day -day in a lab do you have to spend a lot of time managing plants essentially in these controlled environments 
Well, uh, the day-to-day uh, is quite bearable. Uh, well, my flatmate thinks that I just look at flowers and count the number of flowers each plant produces, but that's not it. Uh, well, I have to uh, well grow plants and look at them at different stages. When they start producing flowers, that is the first stage when I start looking at them. And because I'm more uh, interested in the developmental aspect, uh, I get to do cool stuff like confocal microscopy to see how different, uh, when different flowers arise and uh, how different mutants actually produce flowers. Um, apart from that, when they actually start flowering and producing loads of flowers, because I look at flower mutants, I get to take loads of pictures of these flowers. At the end, look at the fruit produced, because flowers make fruits, make seeds. So that is also uh, quite important for my project right now. Apart from this, I spend quite a lot of time cloning stuff to transform the plants. So, you know, overexpressing certain kinds of genes or um, knocking them down. And at the end, everyone has to do stats. So it's uh, one week, I'm just literally looking at the flowers and next week, maybe um, I'm doing loads of cloning. And one week I'm juggling between everything because everything happens at the same time. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into this line of work? So, um, well, I did my... uh, master's in India, which was from the University of Pune. And uh, this was an integrated master's, so undergrad and master's together. And during this time, I did some projects in nanotechnology, which is great because I always wanted to do that. But at some point, we started learning more about molecular biology and DNA and cloning. And I really wanted to do something related to that, but I didn't know what. So I made a list and started checking off things I would never like to do. Things like cancer biology. No, I I really wasn't interested. Or I didn't want to work with proteins because a few of my experiments with protein stuff had failed in my undergrad. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, I didn't have really concrete reasons, but I was still checking off things, you know, which did not appeal to me at that point. And one of our lecturers said that, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to this place, Ikrisa, the place I mentioned before. If you're interested in molecular biology, I mean, plants have DNA and people do molecular biology around plants. So why not that? And I thought I'd do my dissertation there. So I applied and got in. And I really liked it because they didn't just work in, in the labs, you know, they worked with farmers as well. So that was one place where I could see things from the lab having a direct impact on farmers. And that was great. I was really interested. I worked there for a bit after my master's and then applied for a PhD um, in my current lab and got in. Seeing how your work impacts people directly, do you think that was an important part of your experience in your integrated master's? Uh, oh yes, that that was really satisfying because um, you know it's it's not very common in research, especially when it comes to really basic sciences, that uh, you can see the direct impact of 
your work or your colleagues work on um, things around you and especially coming from um, India which is a developmental country and uh, a highly agrarian country you know farmers are um, quite important for our economy people doing work here was helping them that really motivated me at some point right and then kind of now in your current lab so usually when we have the introductions at the beginning of the podcast we ask people like okay so how do you think your work could benefit the world so it was a curious omission uh curious omission there this time around could you would you mind speaking about that a little bit how do you feel your work is impacting the world now hi so um my phd is not going to help farmers right now but uh you know research is an ongoing thing so people taking this forward and the results i get in the phd uh, if people take it forward a few more years it might lead to something nice which has a direct application yeah i feel you there so, i feel you there <laughs> so uh you know it's 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 a bit uncertain and um when when i tell people that oh i work with plants they just immediately uh jump to the conclusion that i'm going to solve the food security problem but uh, not all of us do that personally i like getting lost in the weeds uh-huh what we learn at the end of the day is slightly less important than trying yeah. to figure a particular problem out in my case that's just how i'm wired i like i like got a there's a problem oh let's go solve it or we don't know what this is oh let's go figure <laughs> it out that's just kind of my my deal um mm-hmm. but i guess in industry you're more interested in getting a product out right because that's how you eat yeah yeah because uh in, as grad students we don't get paid much but at least we have a place to stay. We have food for the most part. Yeah. Um, but in industry, that's all dependent on, hey, can you get this product out? Right. Oh, if we don't make any progress like this, then the investor money will dry up and we go nowhere, you know, yeah. regardless of how good of an idea it is or regardless of how close you are, you know, you gotta, yeah. So that is certainly a balance that I'm trying to learn. And so that's why it's really interesting. We're having this particular conversation about, like, yeah, the work can directly impact people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some work, you can't see what that direct impact is. It's not very clear. But regardless, it's because you don't know for sure, that also makes it important to keep searching, right? Makes it because it, it might, who knows what you'll find. Yeah, because even though it doesn't have a direct impact on the world, doesn't make it, uh, you know, less important yeah still a moral obligation on the part of scientists i think because specifically because you don't know for sure like how can you be sure and if if this work does help other scientists in the future then you know it's also and we wouldn't know unless we do it and that's kind of the mentality i came into industry and it doesn't quite gel right industry you gotta get something out (laughs) something's gotta work at least you get money yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I keep telling myself I could tackle science problems later in the future. At least I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I can still yes. do a postdoc mm-hmm. later. 
Yeah, yes, of course you can. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll find what you like there. Crossing, crossing fingers. People can't see this because it's you can you can see this because you're in webcam. So speaking of which, <laughs> uh, so I've noticed, yeah. So um, we're we're just doing a video call for the for, this is for the audience. We're doing a video call because uh, Richa is uh from across the pond, not in the states at all. <laughs> so I've noticed that you're having this call from what clearly looks like an office. Unless, you know, you like just keeping binders and filing cabinets in your room. <laughs> no, I'm, I am in the office. Gotcha. Um, were, you, were you working later and then you just happened to... It's like, oh, it's uh, no. 7 o'clock now. We gotta... <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I was supposed to do this for, from home, but, um, well, I, I thought it might be quieter ah, okay. from the office because... Um, I live uh, in the city center, right above a bar, and it gets loud sometimes. I understand. Okay, so it wasn't so grad life. I was kind of like, oh boy, oh no, this girl, this poor girl, grad life. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, it is, it is quite important to maintain that work-life balance, and uh, it's it's great if you're not in at uh, seven o'clock on Sunday evenings, you know. Oh, right. It's morning for me now, FYI, because oh, okay. I live in California. Um, <sighs> that's for the audience uh, to know. When we were chatting a little bit before we started the interview proper, you mentioned that you're an international student. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me what that's like? Well, I moved to Leeds for this PhD and nothing else because, you know, most people uh, move first and then decide to study further. Uh, they moved due to personal reasons, and some of us moved just for this because oh, we love science so much. So when I moved, uh, I think it was in October, a couple of years ago. And the biggest difference that I had to deal with was the weather, because in India it was October, and that was a quite hot October. That I think it was thirty-five degrees something, and I arrived in Leeds. And it was three degrees. And, That's a high, wow. high nineties uh, for us Americans. Yes, and and um, you know when you go somewhere, you obviously look up the weather, and uh, when you see that oh, winters go as low as minus one or minus two degree, um, well, I thought it would be okay. I mean, we go on holidays when it's cold. And, you know, it's generally fine. But living somewhere like this for months in these windy conditions on this rainy island, oh my God, it was such a big difference. <laughs> right, it's uh, super cold right now over there, I believe, yeah. We're in the middle of uh, um, December. I think uh, well, it's not super cold for people, but yes, it's cold for me. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still wearing a heavy jumper in the office. Gotcha. I understand. I understand. Yeah, because um, at, at time of recording, this is uh, mid-December, I believe. Yeah, mid-December, early-ish December. Mm -hmm. um, so, so uh, weather shock is uh, one aspect. Culture shock is another bigger aspect. And um, it was funny that I had a culture shock because, you know, I grew up reading books written by British authors, Charles Dickens. So in my head, uh, I knew England already, but no, 
<laughs> you uh, always, yes. always go through a culture shock. Uh, socializing is different. Um, work culture is different. And, you know, I think unless uh, you're actually quite comfortable somewhere and if you don't really feel at home, it reflects on your work. So finding that comfort zone uh, once you move somewhere, especially for international students, it's I, I think it is quite important. Mm, that's, yeah. How do you feel like you've adjusted? Oh, quite well now. Better than I would have thought. We have uh, short days here now because it's winter and don't get to see the sun enough because it's always gray and cloudy. But... Um, I'm adjusting to it. And first year was difficult. This year, I barely notice it. So I think it's it's nice. And we've um, got really nice colleagues and uh, made friends now. So it's improving. Another science question for you. Because mm -hmm. of the weather up mm -hmm. there at the higher latitude, um, right. Do your plant have your are your plant studies? Do they have to operate differently than when you were doing your masters versus your PhD? Uh, I guess it's all con in controlled environments anyway, so it may not matter. Yeah, it's all in controlled environments. And um, when I was in my masters, or later when I worked in India, I was working on different plants which are more native to that country. So. Um, well, the basic experiments were still the same. You clone and you mutate and then you look at the phenotype. But um, the growth conditions were different. Well, it, it doesn't doesn't really make uh, a big difference. Uh, the funniest part uh, of my project is that um, it was conceptualized out of not growing plants in controlled conditions. So... Uh, you know, because we work with mutants and transgenics, they can't really be grown out in fields because they have to be contained because of um, environmental safety reasons. Well, you don't want them to spread if you don't. Want yeah, them you to don't do want that. them to spread. Yes. Uh, so people have mostly always grown uh, mutants in very uh, controlled, constant conditions at you know constant temperature and uh, light and dark conditions. Uh, very controlled humidity. Uh, but uh, one of our collaborators uh, have something called a screenhouse, which is like a greenhouse, but um, it can still, the plants in there can still experience the natural environment uh, outside. So all those temperature, humidity changes. Uh, light intensity changes so uh, well that's that's quite interesting and uh, this is in berlin in germany and uh, they decided to grow some mutants there looked at the flowers and oh my god they look so different so these mutants have been reported to not have a very significant phenotype uh, in so many papers before when they were grown under controlled conditions and the moment you put them in something which is changing, they change as well. And that is how we thought about, you know, these genes being responsible for robust development of flowers. So that is how everything started. So it's almost as if it needs kind of that stress of being outside for it to, they'll, they'll express, they'll, they'll look different. Huh, interesting. 
I guess I may be delving outside of science is more like a <laughs> philosophical <laughs> conjecture, but. <laughs> but um, stress or maybe, um, you know, I think that growing plants in something that is very constant and controlled and using the seeds from the same set of plants and doing it for generations and plants adapt unless something different doesn't happen they they wouldn't uh, really show show them you mentioned that it, it's turnaround time for experiments for with your specific plants is about eight weeks because that's just how long yeah. it takes for them to grow uh, what happens yes. if something goes wrong is it do plant biology PhDs take slightly longer than average PhDs because of that? How does that work? Um, when something goes wrong and you realize that after two months, it's not good, I must tell you. Um, it's a very bad feeling. Because, I mean, you know, months. if. <laughs> yes, because if something goes wrong uh, with say molecular stuff like cloning, let's say, you can still rectify it in a couple of days or weeks maybe. But um, when you run a whole experiment and analyze the data and see that, oh, your control looks a little bit screwed up, it's not a happy moment, I must tell you. And um, repeating that leads to two more months. And if it doesn't work again, it's two more months. So um, with plant biology, especially well, in research everywhere, planning is really important. But I think it's really crucial for plant biologists because it takes forever. Um, PhDs aren't really longer uh, in the UK because essentially most people do a four-year PhD. Uh, it's more of a pressure of getting good results and, uh, you know, some... Um, doing good work in those four years or three years for people like me who are on a three-year funding. So um, that's what leads to more stress and anxiety, I think. Ah, I, yeah, just uh, for the sake of the audience, um, yeah, US PhDs take five years because you're earning the master's along the way. And I believe that's mm -hmm. not how it is in the, in the UK, at least. Uh, you earn a master's and then you go into your PhD no, it's very different in the UK. They they can do a PhD right after their undergrads. So, ah. um, yeah, they they don't need a master's. As such. Oh yeah, same for same here. It's just um, generally speaking, as part of the PhD process, yeah, you you just earn your master's after the first year classes. Oh okay. Yeah, so it's kind of nice. Yeah, so you go uh, right into a good. PhD right after your undergrad. It takes five years. You lose your first year because you're doing classes most of the time. But at uh -huh. least you get a master's out of it, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. But uh, I, but it did make me wonder if you study a certain kind of plant, will that mm -hmm. mean a longer PhD than people that study other kinds of plants? Uh, not that I'm aware of hmm. because um, – then you then you design your objectives that way because universities don't like it if you go past four or let's say four and a half years in the UK. In theory, they don't like it here in the States either. 
but I've known a lot of six, seven-year PhDs, like a lot. Yeah, I, I, I know a few six, seven-year PhD from the States or from India because they were working on uh, slightly different plant systems, but not in the UK. So, um, well, lucky British people. Another thing that we talked about as we were going back and forth is that you're the wellness representative for grad students in your department. Could you tell me about what that is? I'm something called the well-being student representative. You know, people keep on talking about uh, stress and anxiety and um, mental health issues in research, especially PhD students. And uh, if you look at uh, academic Twitter, uh, um, people really talk about it and it's it's a big issue ah yes academic twitter it's a <laughs> fun place filled with <laughs> it uh, is. very depressed people and it, it's <laughs> memey and it's funny so i guess it's okay but then you think about it it's like oh right grad school is actually like this it's actually kind of yeah oh, oh, oh. so um i and a postdoc uh, from uh, from biological sciences at athletes. We were thinking about, you know, doing something about it um, in our faculty because you you can see that someone is stressed maybe or people are not having a great time or maybe we were stressed at some point. And um, though most universities offer support, not many students like it or um, maybe it's not compatible if you know what Accepted I mean. Accepted as much. Uh, yeah, or um, you, you don't sometimes like talking to someone who doesn't understand the gravity of your problem. Like um, if I go home and uh, tell my parents that, oh, I'm feeling very sad because my experiment failed after two months. Uh, they are just going to be nice, maybe uh, make me a cup of tea and say that, oh, you go back to work and try again tomorrow, which is great, which is most people would do, obviously. Right. Um, but sometimes that doesn't make you feel better. Uh, so uh, we thought talking to other people in the faculty might be more helpful because if I tell you that, oh, my experiment failed after two months and you say that, oh, yeah, that happened to me too, uh, it failed after, let's say, three months, me feel slightly better. Or you might say that, oh, yes, this happened to me, and then I did this, and this really helped. Uh, it is also giving me some good advice. It might or might not work, but at least you're trying to talk to someone who might understand. And the way we looked at it was uh, there are so many PhD students in their final year or postdocs and early career researchers uh, who've obviously successfully finished their PhDs. So they've gone through this, they've had the experience, and they are at the positions they hold right now because they successfully de dealt with all this. Yeah, they lived, yes. Yeah, so, so they make a good resource, right? Um, if you talk to them, there is a high chance of they having good advice for you. But because... All of this is such a taboo and there's a stigma uh, talking about um, mental health issues. People generally don't. And we thought that talking more about it, talk, being more open uh, might be great. To me, it almost sounds like to some degree, not even about dealing with 
a problem, but more mm -hmm. about finding a support community, just a community where it's like, you know, you have someone that's kind of yes. gone through the same sort of like nonsense that you have, and they just kind mm -hmm. of know what it's about. And there's something. Yeah. And you might be sometimes intimidated telling people from your lab that, oh, this is happening like for the fourth time now that uh, this certain experiment failed and I'm very stressed about it um, because there might be fear of judgment. But how about talking to other people who are not in your lab but might still be able to offer you good advice? So uh, we are trying to run sessions uh, for very specific topics, you know, about, let's say, uh, how to deal with writing a thesis because some people struggle with that how to manage your finances in the last year of your phd because that is when you start running out of money funding runs out and uh, still don't have a job because you haven't finished writing your thesis so someone telling you where to find a cheap house would be good advice isn't it so um, that is the sort of thing we are trying to do now so it's very new but we hope it helps. So, okay, so how does this work? So you mentioned that grants are for like three years usually? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right? And then you mentioned PhDs take about four years? Yeah. Is this is that a constant threat and danger? Like, <laughs> uh, oh, my three years are up. My fourth year isn't. Oh, no. Yes, uh, I better uh, tighten my belt buckle. For, for some students. So, um, for example, me, my funding comes from India because I get a scholarship from the government of India, which is for three years. Um, I can finish my PhD in four years, but then that one year, the last year, um, I wouldn't get paid. So it's ideal to finish in three years. And That would be ideal, yes. Well, I do, but uh, I hope that happens. Yes, okay. I I read you loud and clear. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah, so um, so most people, I think this, this is a common problem with international students. But you know, people try their hardest to do it. And um, if you have lovely and supportive supervisors like mine um i think it's it's great or then you have to start looking for alternative funding options which doesn't always work out how easy is it to get alternative funding sources um, is if this is a common problem well i don't know how easy it is i think it largely depends on what country you come from which is um very surprising and not very pleasant because uh, if you're doing your PhD in UK, most UK universities fund PhDs for home students and students from EU. And uh, if someone from EU applies for alternative funding, I think uh, they have more opportunities. But then for other international people, uh, it is not always great. This is how it is, I think. Um, not great for science, but we can't really help it. I often hear about uh, the British and their proclivity towards understatement. 
And I wish I was reminded of that going into this conversation because a lot of a, a lot of a few certain statements go like, ah, okay, now now I understand what she's saying. Ah, okay, I get it now. Please excuse this uh, silly yank. But yeah, that's kind of um, that's kind of terrifying though, to be honest. To to at least in the states here, they give you a funding guarantee, unless something goes spectacularly wrong. Generally speaking, you don't have. There isn't. Well, that's not true. A lot of there's a few people that have gone through their PhD and then they've had to worry about funding for their last year or something like that. But that's usually <laughs> the the exception, not the rule. Um, that's usually how that goes here. Yeah, that's like a that's another sort of, sort of level of existential dread going on i think when you have to worry about that mm. so yes yeah so i guess it is way more important to have like a support structure where people can tell you like oh yeah go here for cheap housing or whatever you gotta do what you gotta do to survive i guess mm. you know you want to yeah. do your science and you gotta live at the same time <laughs> yeah or um just small advice like that or someone to have coffee with when everything absolutely refuses to work and you feel like nothing might ever work out in this PhD. You just need to slow down, step back a little, drink coffee with someone who understands and then go back to the lab. Final question I like to ask. When you have to stress eat, what do you stress eat? (laughs) I stress drink and I drink Uh. loads of tea. Uh, so if I'm super stressed, I invest a lot of time in making proper Indian chai, uh, you know, masala chai, then English tea doesn't work for me then. And well, that, that is my stress food. What exactly about that appeals? I don't know. I, I've done this for as long as I can remember, maybe even as a child. So yeah, that's, that's uh, I think, an ingrained response. Something goes wrong, make chai. Very good. And now you're drinking a lot of chai here in grad school. Yes. I understand how this goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> a definite correlation there. <laughs> Thank you very much. I know it's a weekday night for you. So, no, it's Sunday. It's still Sunday Yes, it's, it's still Sunday. No, it's a, yeah, yeah, working night for you. But thank you for taking the time to join me on oh, this th- chat. Thank you for talking to me.